invite this morning to either open your Bible or your Bible app on your phone um, to the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 16. And as you're finding your way there, I, uh, <clears throat> I was thinking to myself this past week, what, uh, what a blessing it was to be in Los Angeles and to be among some of the most courteous uh, drivers in, in traffic I, I've ever come across. Um, six lanes of 65 to 80 miles an hour and people honking and swerving and in and out. And uh, I'm trying to find my way to the desired destination um, from the Los Angeles, from LAX. And were it not for Josh and Kathy and their smartphones and their GPS apps, uh, I'd still be wandering in that maze down there. <laughs> so I'm very grateful for that. God has given us his GPS, hasn't he? We hold it on our laps. We, we wear them out and replace them with new ones. We cherish this GPS unit that God has given us that points us with certainty and assurance to the desired destination. This morning's message is a message I bring because I believe, as Paul spoke in Acts 20, that God has commissioned those who preach his word to deliver the whole counsel of God. And from time to time, it is important for us as believers to get the big picture and to keep that big picture, that big uh, panoramic view of what life on earth is about and what life after death is about. You look up on the screen and you see this actual satellite photograph, Hubble photograph, of Earth. And it's my understanding that tens of thousands, I don't remember the figure, maybe 125,000 per day leave this world in, in a course that will take them to one destiny or another. The departed souls from this world go to a destiny. And it's crucial as believers that we recognize what Scripture says about this. And today, the title of the message is The Comfort Above and the Cry from Beneath. When I was in Los Angeles on the school campus, I sat with a little old lady who had brought her I believe her grandson, to school, and she was from New York. And she was outside the city, of course, in a more of a rural area and had attended a church for years. And when COVID hit, her pastor seemed to change. And she sat there, and she even wiped some tears away. She said, I loved my church and for many years, but she said something happened, and our pastor, when COVID hit, he began to spend more time 
watching the news than reading his Bible, it seemed to us. And every Sunday he would come and everything had to do with COVID-19 and it had to do with all of the hardships and difficulties and, and the woes of shutting businesses down and on and on it went and the polarization of, of uh, the political system over the issues and all of this stuff. And she said, we were starving for the word of God. We needed the scriptures. We needed to be fed. That's why we came. We can get the news every night in cycle after cycle. We needed what only you could give us. And so after some six or eight months, she said with tears, it was the hardest thing for my husband and I to finally pull out and leave our church that we had loved for so long because it had just become so strange that what we longed to hear, we weren't hearing, and what our souls needed, we were not receiving. And she wasn't the sort that's bad-mouthing every pastor, and she just was heartbroken over it all. And so I was thinking about that, and on my way home, flying home, I was thinking about her and our time that we spent, probably half hour, 45 minutes, just talking over coffee. And I said, Lord, I make me faithful to preach your word and to feed your people the truth. Uh, whether I fully understand how it feeds us, you understand. So this message, the comfort above and the cry from beneath, is what we're looking at. So would you look at verse 19, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. And here we have what I believe is a parable. I won't get into the scholarship and the study behind this, but down through church history, many have said, no, this is a real story, and they had their reasons for it, and others have said, no, the Lord is using parabolic means to teach the truth. Either way doesn't seem to matter to me because the message is quite clear. So I'd like you to just follow with me as I read, and then we're going to back up and look at this great parable. Verse 19, Jesus speaks. And by the way, so you understand the context, look up at verse 14. Or actually, verse 13. Or let's go all the way back to Genesis 1. <laughs> I like the context, you know. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, Jesus said. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other, you cannot serve God and mammon, or wealth, money. Verse 14 says, now the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at him. So that's their response to what Christ was teaching. Now we move down to verse 19. And Jesus tells this story. Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling 
from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm or gulf fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And then he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Being the master teacher that he is, the Lord Jesus uses a story to clarify, listen carefully, to clarify beyond that, that beyond this world, there are only two destinations. Two destinies. One being heaven and the other hell. As we look at this story, unpacking it, there's just three simple points. It's a contrast, isn't it, between these two men. The one who lived in splendor the one who suffered no want, the one who seemed to have everything and a life of ease, a man self-absorbed and a man who lived for himself, a man who had it all. Then we have Lazarus, this poor man, this man who is suffering from some kind of skin infection or inflammation, laying at a gate, the gate of this rich man longing to have a few scraps. 
In those days, it wasn't uncommon that just outside the gate of a wealthy person's home was basically where they took their garbage. And he longed to sort through, rifle through the garbage and scraps that might come from the rich man's table. And in addition, with this sickness and skin inflammation of some kind, the, the stray dogs that wandered the streets were the only friends he had. They would come and lick his sores. They would do what they would do for themselves when they had an injury on their paw or on their leg. And they would come and do what they could for Lazarus. So before us, we have two men before death, basically a contrast in their resources and in their lot in life. We have two men at death, contrasted. Lazarus dies, and he is carried away. God dispatches angels from glory who come and take him up at his death and carry him to Abraham's bosom. We have two men after death, Lazarus at home in glory and the rich man now finding himself in hell. So as we think about this, and I, I wanted to keep this very simple. I don't want to delve into every single detail because I think the Lord had a point. And that point was, you need to follow the GPS or you're not going to arrive at your desired destiny. You need to take heed to Moses and the prophets who spoke of the Christ, of his suffering and the glory which would follow, according to 1 Peter 1. You need to make sure that your soul is aligned and prepared for eternity. So in this passage, these two destinations are put in this way. One is called Abraham's bosom. The poor man is carried away to Abraham's bosom. That's just a figure of speech for heaven, for eternal glory. Abraham, the father of faith and of the faithful. It's just a figure of speech. Sometimes heaven is spoken of as paradise. Sometimes it's likened to this beautiful, glowing, glimmering city and residences that God has prepared for his, for his children who are redeemed and saved, who belong to him. Sometimes it's likened to a great garden with, with a tree of life and fruit upon it and a river that flows from the throne of God that refreshes the people of God. There are all these different scenes and figures of speech that depict for us the glory that awaits the child who knows Jesus Christ and trusts in him and him alone. And so Abraham's bosom is this figure of speech for heaven. All the blessings of salvation and eternal benefits of God's unlimited grace. That's what awaits the believer who knows Christ. I was last night talking to my daughter and son-in-law, and I told them, you know, one of the sweetest verses in all the Bible 
that I know that has brought comfort to me so many times. You know, often God gives us promises and he tells us what he's going to do for, for his people. But every once in a while, he also tells us what's, what's in his heart. He tells us why, what motivates him. Listen to this verse. It comes just before the verses that we've all memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast, right? Ephesians 2.8. But in verse 7, it says this. It says, speaking of those that are saved, that are purchased, that belong to Christ, it says that, that in the ages to come, think of Lazarus now in Abraham's bosom, that in the ages to come, God might show to us the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards those who are in Christ Jesus. God tells us that this superabounding, all-surpassing grace in salvation that has brought us into fellowship with Christ and has promised us an eternal home. This grace is motivated by the kindness of God's heart. Why are you a believer? The kindness of his heart. What is in store for you for all eternity? Expression after expression of the kindness of God's heart towards his own. And so now we find Lazarus, who in his lifetime seems to have had nothing. In fact, the, the text Jesus says he was laid at the gate. So apparently he had suffered some kind of disability or some kind of paralysis. He couldn't even get to the gate on his own. And he was laid there hoping for mercy from the rich man who lived in splendor. So then we have this tremendous contrast, don't we? That at death, he's carried to glory. And, and then what is said of the rich man is that he was buried. And, of course, it doesn't take much imagination. What kind of burial was it? Well, he, he was this ultra-wealthy man with all these friends and people living in splendor. No doubt there was all kinds of pomp. There was a eulogy to die for. Spoken over this wealthy man and all... All, all that he had achieved and all that he had accomplished, boy, he fared well in this world. He was buried. And then there's this turn. And we have the contrast, don't we? The contrast of Abraham's bosom, where Lazarus now is, and Jesus says there he is being comforted. Comforted by God. How personal is God towards his suffering children? You ever think about it? The book of Revelation has this amazing statement, and I know you've probably read it. But when God sets out to comfort his child when he arrives home, he has a hundred million angels that he could delegate the responsibility to. But it says, God, and God himself 
will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He doesn't delegate it. Someday, God himself will wipe the tears from our eyes. Well, not so with the rich man. There's no consolation and there's no comfort where he is. There's no wiping away of tears. Where he is is unspeakably difficult. You know, C.S. Lewis once wrote, I think it was in his treatise called The Weight of Glory. He wrote the most amazing thing. I read this 40 years ago when I was in school. And I remember just stopping and pondering it. And Lewis, with his imagination, he said, he said this, he said, you have never met an ordinary person. Listen to me now. You have never met an ordinary person. He said, in the eternal state, whether one goes to heaven or one to hell, were you in your present condition to meet one of those individuals, one of two things would happen. To the one who has come under God's judgment and has been banished to hell, that one you would see and close your eyes and plug your ears and you would run in horror to get away from the sight. Whereas were you to see a glorified saint now clothed in all of the beauty and righteousness of Jesus Christ by the grace of God, were you to see that one, in our present state, we'd all be strongly tempted to drop to our knees and worship because of the beauty of the glorified child of God. I think he's right, if, if not understating it. Well, Hades in the Old Testament is the equivalent of hell in our New Testament. It's, it's the place of the lost. It's the place of the departed dead in judgment. And so the Lord, three-quarters of this entire parable is focused on the destiny of the rich man who was without Christ and was without salvation. He was unforgiven. And so from Christ's teaching, we learn a number of things, and I'll just touch on them quickly. But even here, just in this passage, without going elsewhere in the Bible to develop the doctrine of eternal judgment, just this passage tells us several things about the departed dead who find themselves banished from the presence of God. First of all, we find out that hell is an actual place. It's real. We're told there in verse um, 23, and in Hades he lifted up his eyes. Jesus is speaking of hell as a place, a real location. Not only is it an actual place, it's an immediate place. We get no indication from this story that there was any time lapse. There was no soul sleep, as some teach. Immediately, he found himself there. I ask you this morning, where will you be five seconds 
after your heart stops beating? Where will you be? Immediate. It's also a conscious place. In fact, I believe that in hell, those who are there are more awake and more conscious than they have ever been. Look here at verse 23. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. That speaks of consciousness, does it not? He's fully awake and alive in that sense of being able to understand. I was also just speculating. You know, they tell us that we only use a very, very small fraction of our, of our brain. Some of us use more than others. But what if when we arrive in hell, if we're without Jesus Christ, what if we have all the capacity of our brain and are fully awake to the horrors of where we are? It is a separated place. Number four, he goes on to tell him that there is a great gulf fixed. No one can cross from heaven to hell and no one from hell to heaven. No sense making that request. Lazarus can't come to you. He can't comfort you. He can't bring that drop of cold water for your tongue. Do you ever stop and think, why does Jesus illustrate hell in this way? Why didn't he give us this horrendous picture of the horrors of judgment and separation from God, banished forever? Why didn't he give us that picture? Instead, he personalizes it so much so that the man's request is for a drop of cold water on his tongue. It is a separated place, and it's also an agonizing place. We're told in this story that he was in torment and lifting up his eyes, being in torment. He cries out. And when he's told no one can pass from here to there or there to here, then the strangest thing happens. And I learned from this story, no one in hell wants anyone else to come there. Oh, we've heard the good time Joes, they're drinking buddies, and oh yeah, well, why would I want to go to heaven? All my buds are going to be in hell. What a notion. What a stupid notion. You know, I was sobered by this. I guess it's been probably 30 years ago now. I had had some friends back in high school, and shortly after high school, we were just lost boys. And we drank and partied, and yeah, that's kind of what we lived for. We worked all week, and we partied hard on the weekend, and we always had to have a bottle in our hand. We thought that's where life was. Well, the Lord saved me, and he rescued me at age 21, and, and later I left there and went off to school, and then I found myself pastoring a church for 
several years. And about 10 years, 12 years went by, and I went back to Central Point, the little town I grew up in, to visit my parents. And while I was there, I stopped to get some gas, and lo and behold, here was this friend from high school. Ted was his name. And I won't mention his last name, because this goes on YouTube. But that was his name. But there, I, there we were. And I said, Ted, is that you? And he goes, yeah, hey, Pinkham, how you doing? And, uh, you know, we embraced and we talked for a minute. I said, so bring me up to speed. What have you been doing? And you know what he said? Twelve years I hadn't seen him. He had not moved one inch. He said to me, oh, man, we had a blowout the other night. Friday night a bunch of us got together and we had a keg of beer and, uh, man, we had... We had some of the best weed, and he went on and on and on, and he said, man, you, you should have been there. And I'm thinking, Ted, you've not moved one inch from our high school days. You're still living for Friday night to get drunk. Lost. I mean, I see the humor in that, but lost and pathetic and heartbreaking. How many folks in Kettle Falls and Colville do you know that live just like that? And you know, I thought to myself this week as I studied this passage, with all the news and all the media and all the voices that are out there that has seemed to have something to say and through social media and all of it, you know what? There is one voice, apart from God's voice, that this entire world needs to hear. It's the cry from beneath. Please send someone to my brothers and warn them lest they come to this place also. Banished forever and now evangelistic. Think of the passion with which this rich man is saying, please, I beg you, send Lazarus to my five brothers, lest they come here also. You wouldn't expect a passionate evangelistic voice to rise from beneath, would you? But it did, and it does. R.C. Sproul, who was such a philosopher. He's gone home now and wonderful man. He's kind of a grandfather to some of us. He said one time, because of my imagination, I just can't think long about hell or I'll go insane. It's an agonizing place. and It's also a haunting place. Why is it a haunting place? Because I think in hell you have perfect recall. You remember everything. Not only do you remember the sins in your life, remember the sins that you committed in junior high and high school and college, not only the sins that weigh you down that no one else in this world knows but you and God. Not only that, but you also remember all the times that in mercy the Lord reached out to you and said, will you come to me? 
will you repent and turn around and come back to me that you may become mine and ultimately make your way to the destiny of heaven's glory. It's a haunting place. How do I know that? Because there we have in <clears throat> verse um, yes, verse 25. And Abraham said, Child, remember. Remember that in your lifetime, and you will have crystal clear memory for all eternity that will haunt you if you're in hell. It's an inescapable place. You know, I asked my son-in-law this morning, I said, Nick, have you ever felt claustrophobic? And you know, it was amazing. We're standing in the kitchen, I'm having coffee. Nick, have you ever experienced claustrophobia? You know, tight quarters, you know, shut up, inescapable. And you know, it took him about a half a second, just like that. He said, yes. I was a young boy. So now he's leaping back, you know, 30-something years. Just like that. Yes, I was a young boy. Us boys were playing, and there was an old broken-down van, and the, the hatch doors were open in the back of it, and there was a compartment underneath the floorboard where you could open the lid and climb down in. It was a cargo place, and we thought it was fun to climb underneath there, and it was, it was all you could do to fit one person, and you'd climb in, and then they would shut it. But he said, you can't open it from the inside. And he said, I remember as a boy being in that compartment, and the boys weren't trying to be mean to me. They were just playing, and so they would, somebody probably punched somebody, and the other one kicked them, and they were running around playing. They forgot me for about three or four minutes. And that's all it took as I was pushing and shoving and saying, let me out, let me out, you guys. And he was crying out, pushing and shoving, trying to get out of this compartment. Totally claustrophobic with the fear that I can't escape. I remember a few years back, 20 years now or so, when I had a series of strokes. I was pastoring here. And I collapsed in my backyard while I was running a chainsaw, cutting up a bunch of wood and slash. My whole left side went numb and I collapsed. And that set off a series of 15 strokes over a period of seven hours, all of which I was fully conscious and experienced the strokes. Well, the next day after they flew me to Sacred Heart Hospital, you know, I was a little shaken by that, by the way. <laughs> but they wheeled me down to the basement and said, uh, along with all the blood work and tests and everything we're doing, trying to figure out what's going on with you, we need to do an MRI. You know what? They wheeled me into that tube, and I got about halfway in, and I said, no, I cannot do this because those strokes made me feel claustrophobic. I couldn't shake them, I couldn't. And I, I could no more make my right arm move than I could make Trace's arm move. Helpless. And I said, I can't do it. I was terrified of the MRI. I could not be in that tube. Totally claustrophobic. 
this rich man in hell, has now entered a season that will last from all eternity, forever and without end, of claustrophobia. I can't get out. I can't cross over. You won't even go warn my brothers. Here I am. And not for a month or six months or six years or 6,000 years or 600 million years, but forever claustrophobic. It's a haunting place. It's an inescapable place. It's a desperate place. No one there wants anyone else to be there. Well, this ends with Father Abraham in verse 30 answering him after telling him, you have Moses, you have the prophets, you have the truth of the word of God. You have the gospel. What are you going to do with it? Will you respond? Will they repent? Will they turn to Jesus Christ? Will they? And Father Abraham says in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear him. But, but the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Message of this is simply this. You know what you need to do to go to hell? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Are you hearing me? Why do I say that? Because you're born in sin. You're born with Adam's nature. You are born fallen. Now, some of us are worse sinners on the outside than others, but God knows us through and through, and he knows that apart from the miracle of a repentant heart and the gift of faith and coming to Christ and the miracle of being born of God's Spirit, your, your heart changed toward God. Apart from that, you don't need to do anything to go to hell. You're already on your way. You're lost in Los Angeles without a GPS. And I'm telling you, listen now. Every week that you come, you have the GPS hanging right there on those banners. In John 14, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I, what? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. You must come to me. You must trust in me. You must turn from your unbelief and your sin and fully come. Surrender your life and come to me. GPS, God's personal salvation 
through Christ and Christ alone. Where are you today? Lots of people give lip service to God. One of the most pathetic ones that I know of, because I saw it in a clip, Miss Monroe, Marilyn Monroe. Some of you kids are too young to remember who Marilyn Monroe was. She was a famous movie star. Pretty as all get out. But like the proverb says, like a swine with a golden ring in its ear is a woman without discretion. She was Hollywood's model of sensuality. And she was asking in an interview before all the cameras, Marilyn, Miss, Miss Monroe, do you believe in God? Well, of course, everybody in Hollywood believes in God. And her answer was, why, yes, I do. And he's just a loving doll. Does that make you cringe? It should. Just because a person gives lip service or, or attends church, They can be in the same predicament that this rich man was. He knew about Father Abraham, didn't he? But inside he was vacant from a life lived of self-interest, self-indulgence, all about me. And knew nothing of a life lived in faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I am the way, Jesus said. I am the truth. I am the life. And Peter echoed that in the fourth chapter of Acts when he said, there is no other name given under heaven. There is salvation in no other, for there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must, we must be saved. Do you know him this morning? Or are you yawning your way through this message? Are you thinking, I can't believe it. This pastor, doesn't he know this is 2021? You don't preach about heaven and hell. That's something for ages past. And so that, congratulate yourself in those thoughts. Because that puts you in perfect standing with the Pharisees who listened to Jesus and it says they mocked him and scoffed at him. So you've chosen your association, if you scoff at this message. You need God's forgiveness. You need to be restored to God. You need to come back to Christ. You need to cry out to him. You need him. And if you don't, you're going to find yourself five seconds after your last breath exactly where this man described in this passage found himself. Do you know him? I know many of you do because I've fellowshiped with you. But this is something that we need to take to heart because if you know him, I guarantee you, you know others who don't. We've never met an ordinary person. Never. 
every person we lock eyes with and have a conversation with is presently on a journey to one destination or the other. And so I close this morning with this question. What's your destiny? What GPS, what GPS coordinates are you following? Where will your soul be five seconds after you die? So you see, we entertain thoughts of things that the world does not offer us. We think about things that have gravity, that matter, that are serious. Doesn't mean we don't laugh and celebrate and have, and have joy together. But we're not afraid to wrestle with and grapple with matters of eternal significance. So I'd like you to just bow with me in prayer. And I want to talk to you who are not sure. As our heads are bowed and we are before you, Lord, how I want to be your mouthpiece this morning. I want to speak to that soul here among us who's just not sure about their destiny. They've heard your teaching and they've heard your parable and they've heard the warning in it and here they sit not sure just where they'll be for all eternity. Lord, they need they need your mercy. They need the power of the Holy Spirit to open blind eyes and to awaken a dead heart to you. They need to take whatever confidence that they've placed in being religious and put it beneath their feet and step on it and be done with it because by the works of, of the law and by our religious efforts, no one will be justified in your sight. You have provided righteousness and you have provided forgiveness and provided salvation. You've provided everything we need, Lord, to begin afresh with you. The question is, have we heard Moses? Have we heard the prophets? And have we responded to the voice of the one who rose from the dead? So, Lord Jesus, I pray, and we all who know you pray, that that person or several in our midst who have not made that step of faith and trust in you would hear your living voice right now, calling them, urging them, inviting them, even summoning them to come. Come now and give your heart, surrender your life, and put your trust in Jesus Christ who conquered death and conquered the grave and has promised us eternal life and eternal glory if we'll but come to him. Look to him 
and live. Lord, do what only you can do. I can preach to the head. Only you can speak to the heart. I pray that the one who needs you will now, at this very moment, simply say yes. Jesus, forgive me. I do not want to go to that horrifying, claustrophobic place where the damned go. But rather, I want to arrive safely in your kingdom and in your glory. Forgive me, Lord. Cleanse me of my sin. Wash my heart clean. Restore me to fellowship with you. And then teach me to walk with you day by day. Lord, thank you through my fumbling and my awkwardness and my inability. Thank you that your word is true, however faltering I may be, that you can speak to the heart and call people to a genuine salvation and faith in you. And I pray you would do it. We pray that you would do it. And so as we stand together now, brothers and sisters, let's sing again. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Sing it with me and stand together with me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As we finish today our time together, if anyone at all wishes to speak with me or another believer here, if you want to, to leave this place with the assurance that your soul is right with God. Come talk to us. We want to help you. It's so simple. It's just that you can't bring your pride with you. The gate is narrow, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are they that find it. Are you one of those choice ones that God from all eternity has written in the Lamb's book of life. Is he summoning and calling you? We pray that he is. In Jesus' name, amen.